Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by The Jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 13th, 2015, the Happy Valentine's Day Judge Moore edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. At my side is John Dickerson of CBS News and Slate. Hello, John. Hi, David. I'm well. Good. And joining us from New Haven is uh, Emily. Hello. Hello, Hello, Emily of the New York Times Magazine. Nice to be back. Yes. Are you going to explain? Well, we'll get to it later. This week, the marriage equality circus in Alabama. Then we'll talk about whether, how you should or should not forgive Brian Williams. David Brooks forgave him, so should you. And an astonishing story by an unknown journalist named (laughs) Emily Bazelon. 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 Bazier. (laughs) <laughs> it's about a campus rape uh, charge in at Stanford that is part Fifty Shades of Grey, part Social no- Network, all misery. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we'll talk about me. We'll talk about me, 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 really? me, 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 me. You'll, you guys, John, will, as usual, will just like will chill out, not really pay attention. I'll just talk about myself. He just grabbed a really big book. He grabbed a binder. I don't know. He has a binder full of women there. Yeah. It's got all my special thoughts in it. It's a lavender binder. That is, John Dickerson is a person who has so many tools of things. I know. Also, you coordinated the color of your binder with the color of the notepad inside. You know, that's true. Oh, you mean the color of the the cover of the notepad inside. I didn't realize that's that's a kind of unconscious... Garanimals I have right. in my life. Does any? Do they still make garanimals? I don't People, know. Do you guys? Do you? Do you? Did you? I don't even got, know what that is. You don't know what garanimals are. How do you get no. dressed in the morning? I don't know. I guess I don't. What's you match a your like purple hippo with your purple hippo, and you know how to match your like trousers and your uh, shirt before you go bounding out the door to meet the day. That's why I'm never matched. I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's my whole problem. You're matchless. You knew my whole sartorial she is issue was a lack of garanimals, yeah. which I still don't understand what it is. They're kids' clothes. They're not really oh, for adults. Okay. They're not really for adults. But now that they're making um, footy pajamas for adults, I figure that the garanimals adult, you know, basically J. Crew is, is garanimals, Can we right? get to the show? Okay. Can we go? Can we move? No. We have to keep saying garanimals <laughs> over and over again. So in Arkansas, they tend to say, you know, thank God for Mississippi because- Mississippi was always 50th in the rankings of human welfare. So Arkansas's 49th ranking always seemed okay by comparison. Now I feel like in in Mississippi they're saying thank God for Alabama because the marriage equality circus has come to Alabama, creating a form of ludicrous chaos as we tape 
there is a strange situation in Alabama where we have one third of counties in Alabama will marry anybody, any couple that wants to come in. One third will marry only a man and woman who come in to get married. And one third will marry nobody at all. So in those counties, you can't do anything. It all stems from a federal court order and then an effort by the state Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore, a man of notoriety, a very conservative, very Christian politician in that state and his efforts to to prevent marriage equality from going through by judicial fiat. So how did we get here, Emily? How did this happen? Well, Judge Callie Grenade, that's how I'm going to decide to say her name. As you said, she invalidated Alabama's uh, ban on gay marriage. And her order on its face applies only to the attorney general. It says that the Alabama attorney general may not enforce this law because it's unconstitutional. But the case that came before her did not address all of the probate judges in Alabama. These are people – they're called judges, but they're not actually lawyers. And they are the people in you know various city offices and courthouses around the state who actually issue the marriage licenses. So Chief Justice Moore stepped in and he told all those state court judges not to follow this federal judge's order. And he got roundly denounced by like pretty much every liberal commentator. And he seems like, you know, the next George Wallace. I actually think that is wrong and sort of defended him in a piece I wrote this week because this is a weird way to make change, right? We usually don't have one federal judge issuing a decision that technically only binds the parties who are before her. We usually don't use that method as the way of overturning a state law and changing law and policy for an entire state. Usually you have the voters, the legislature, a state Supreme Court ruling, or a federal appeals court ruling that clearly applies more broadly. And so this is odd. And the reason that we haven't confronted this problem in quite this way before is that nobody like Roy Moore bothered to show up and kind of protest. And in fact, there was confusion years ago in California when after Judge Walker, who was the judge in San Francisco, he overturned California's voter initiative banning gay marriage. Then it went up to the appeals court. The Supreme Court invalidated or vacated the appeals court ruling. And then there was this question about whether Walker's ruling applied statewide. And then there was like arguing over that. And finally, a California Supreme Court ruling about that settled the question. So what we're having here is this like interim confusion about the authority of one federal district judge to have her order in effect change the law for everyone. And the real fault here is kind of the 11th Circuit, which refused to do anything, and the Supreme Court, which also just like kind of waved this through without giving any clarity. And Can you that's dig really into that, Emily? So, so there's this, yes. this, there's a seven to two it wasn't a ruling. It was just kind of like a non-ruling. It was a denial of a stay. So the Supreme Court did not stay what? What did they What did they say? Right. So a stay is when a higher court or the court, it, a court itself temporarily suspends an order. Granada did this herself, actually. She said, I find this law unconstitutional, but I'm temporarily blocking my own order from going into effect for 14 days. That will give the Alabama attorney general time to appeal to the federal appeals court, which is the 11th Circuit. And that happened. And the 11th Circuit said, oh, we're denying this. We're not going to do anything. We deny the stay. Like, go ahead. Hold on. Maybe the 11th. What? Just you deny the stay, which means that the judge's original order can go forward. Exactly. They're basically just like standing out of the way as these 14 days. And the Supreme Court did the same. 
Yes, and the seven to two、um, decision that was issued, the two dissenters were Scalia and Thomas, and Thomas wrote a short opinion in which he made the, I think, valid argument that this is like indecorous. That was the word he used because the Supreme Court, as we know, has agreed to hear a different gay marriage case in the spring and rule in June. So that's happening, and yet in the meantime, the court is just seems to be kind of bowing out out of all the other. Gay marriage cases percolating in all these places, and what Scalia and Thomas were essentially arguing, and I agree with them, is that the court is sort of allowing to be created these facts on the ground that. Only help one side of the gay marriage case before them, right? Because like the more states that have same-sex marriage before the Supreme Court has to rule, the easier it is for the proponents of gay marriage to win. And that's like weird to have the Supreme Court kind of passively creating a situation in which one side of a case that is actually before the court is kind of getting this indirect advantage. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? In trying to figure out how wrong that is or isn't, is the argument that the Supreme Court will actually use the march of same-sex marriages through the states in its reasoning, or that outside of its reasoning, the more states that it's okay in, the more it will affect them, even though it's not really supposed to? Do you see what I'm saying? One's explicit、yes. and one isn't. Which did Thomas argue? Thomas was arguing the implicit kind, but the explicit kind could also happen. Although it, now it will seem even more indecorous, I suppose. But in a case about constitutional guarantee to equality under the Fourteenth Amendment, which is basically what we've got here. It's not that there is a hard and fast rule that the court looks across the country and like counts up the states. There is a rule for doing that with the Eighth Amendment, right? Because when you have, like, for example, the question of whether a particular application of the death penalty is cruel and unusual, one of the measures of unusual is how many states are still doing this. So there's lots of counting in those cases. But I think whether you know Justice Kennedy, whoever writes the majority opinion. Which I I think will legalize gay marriage. Whether they say explicitly, like, look at all these states that have done this successfully, yay, or whether that is merely the political backdrop for a much more legalistically written opinion, it's just you can't really separate them. It's like the momentum is inexorable. Right. Is there a general principle, Emily, that you the judges are supposed to continue with? The status quo. I mean, I think you would agree that were there no possibility of the Supreme Court. You know, weighing in on this this issue for fifteen years, that it would be okay for this judge to act aggressively. Like that, is it only the、oh, fact that the Supreme Court the is, is is it only the fact that the Supreme Court is about to rule that makes you think that this should have been stayed? Yeah, and I'm not criticizing this district court judge. She did her job. The people who didn't do their jobs were the Eleventh Circuit and the Supreme Court. The district court judge is looking at this case and making a decision about the constitutionality of this ban, which is a legitimate call at this point. Are the laws stayed? And so there, there's appeals in Michigan and other states in the Midwest around、mm-hmm. gay marriage that the Supreme Court is hearing. Are those laws stayed now? Those state bans, which are on appeal to the Supreme Court, are all still in effect. So why、yes. that makes no sense at all? Why are those bans in effect? But <laughs> because the、not? Sixth Circuit stayed those right.、Oh, like、the so you just had a circuit、job. that was doing its job.、Yes. What's peculiar、right. about the Eleventh Circuit that?、Um, I mean, or is there something 
off about the Eleventh Circuit that would make it do this. Although I guess the well, Supreme Court did the normally, same thing. Normally, it's not like we're all you know like oh the Eleventh Circuit. Normally, the Eleventh Circuit is perfectly reasonable. What happened before the Alabama? Circus I had the Eleventh was- Circuit in the fantasy uh, football game. <laughs> Um, The 11th Circuit faced a similar potential issue last month with Florida. This happened in Florida. A federal district court judge said that Florida's ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. And then there was this question, well, what were the clerks of the court in Florida supposed to do? Actually, that district court judge stayed his own order for like six months. He gave a really long time for the appeals courts to weigh in, and they refused The 11th Circuit refused to stay his order but has accepted an appeal. So there's this weird thing where the Supreme Court decision from the Midwest is pending. And meanwhile, the federal appeals court in Florida, Alabama and what's that third state? I'm going to say Georgia. They have a separate case going on. But in the meantime, the 11th Circuit said that that this district court judge order could go into effect. And then the Florida clerks of the court were like, what are we supposed to do? And the Florida attorney general wrote an opinion saying start issuing marriage licenses to gay couples. And everyone in Florida just was like, "Okay," and went along with it. One more question on on the Supreme Court legal logistics, then let's move to Alabama for a second. So the fact that it was a seven to two with Thomas and Scalia objecting to this, do you think that has any valence, any relevance for what the actual decision in the marriage equality cases will be? Do you think that means, oh, now that Ro- now Roberts and Alito are probably on the side of this? Or do you not think it means anything? I don't know. I mean, Scalia and Thomas said, you know, hey, you guys are sending a signal about how you're going to rule in the end. And it's for gay marriage. Whether all seven of them are leaning in that direction or whether Alito and Roberts had some other procedural rationale for this move, I don't know, because they didn't have to say And there is another procedural way to think about this whole issue, which I'll just lay out, though I don't totally agree with it, which is that once you have a federal judge's ruling, if you are a state probate judge and you don't issue the license, then you could get sued because the constitutional law is is settled and you're supposed to follow settled law. I think that's like a relatively weak argument to make based on a district court ruling. If the 11th Circuit had invalidated Alabama's law, then I think it would be stronger. But that's like hovering out there. Some of these poor, confused probate judges were posting on Facebook like, we don't know what to do and we don't want to get sued. And I think that's the genesis of their concern there. It'll all get sorted out soon enough. Yeah, I mean, maybe (laughs) even as we're taping. John, so let's talk briefly about Alabama. Probably the most interesting line of inquiry in this hall has been how much of an outlier Alabama is in the country. Like the opposition to gay marriage is, is much higher there than in the rest of the country. You know, you have this judge, who, you know, obviously in the this Selma in the Selma period, we're all everyone's seen Selma. We're all thinking about George Wallace. What Roy Moore is doing has small echoes, although I think it's quite unfair to him to say it's exactly the same thing. Yes. Um, you know, is Alabama actually a different state? Is it a different country than the rest of the country or the rest of the South, or is it just you know, it's just like sort of the the South par, the South uber South. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Alabama is a deeply red state. But, you know, the thing about Roy Moore, which I guess have we talked about this, the reason there's a lot of anger at Roy Moore has, I think, in part has to do with his decision to keep the Ten Commandments on the in front of the state capitol and the fight. For which he lost his job, which then right. got reelected. Which he then got reelected, which but but that, I guess, goes back to David's point, which is he lost his job, but then was reelected and is a bit of a folk hero for that. I don't know that there's anything particular about Alabama and maybe just be the shallowness of my understanding of Alabama. 
But I think more broadly, to the extent that it's a more conservative place, same-sex marriage is obviously a bigger threat to the way people live their lives in, in places that are traditionally Protestant, evangelical, you know, and where the opinions about same-sex marriage are much um, stronger against it than in the rest of the country. God, I'm just flashing I mean, back to, I had a college friend in Al- from Alabama, and, and she was from Mobile, and, you know, very urbane and prosperous and, and successful city, and her, remember her brother's private school, they had a dance, which was literally the no homos hoedown. That was the theme of the dance it was God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, the, the classic line. And it was called the no homos hoedown. That was the, and this wasn't, you know, this wasn't in the sixties. This was in the early nineties, but still. I have a question about backlash that I've been trying to think about. So my, the way I think about all of this, like how gay marriage spreads all has to do with my fear of backlash and trying to contain backlash and hope that it won't really matter, which for the most part, there's been incredibly little backlash. So is this sort of a useful moment for channeling backlash in this figure of Roy Moore, who's obviously like the Cheshire cat, incredibly pleased to be on television talking about all of this? Or is this like bad and and a demonstration of why the 11th Circuit, why we should have had a more orderly process exactly to prevent this kind of episode of backlash I mean, this is the if this is the entirety of the backlash this is kind of amazing right you know it's going to be settled if it's not settled today thursday it'll be settled by this weekend and it's you know it's what's the big deal it's like so some state officials got to grandstand about it and pander to their constituents and and make it clear where they stood in an issue oh. it, it seems like so minor it's not gonna they're democrats who are saying oh this is gonna be important because republicans in 2016 are gonna have to defend yeah, this they're not gonna have to defend no this. i mean it's even the governor of the state right even that. the even mm-hmm. or even uh robert bentley the governor of the state didn't defend it i mean he said explicitly that he's not gonna or doesn't agree with what moore's doing and he said i want alabama to be seen uh, he didn't want Alabama to be seen the way it did, it was 50 years ago, which is interesting that he's making that historical analogy to Wallace because it feel, feels like some of the more overheated people have made that analogy. But the Republican governor himself made that analogy and said, I'm trying to move the state forward. Now, he made it not – he's still not in favor of same-sex marriage, but he made it on the kind of defying the court grounds and not uh, cultural grounds. All right. Let's hear from our sponsor GabFest this week is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, new documentary series on HBO. I watched the first episode this weekend. It was excellent. It's about a very rich man who refused to speak, even after being accused, more or less, of three murders. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. Uh, It started last week, and it's from filmmaker Andrew Jarecki. He's done a six-part series about Durst, who's a very reclusive interesting millionaire and directly has exposed long buried information discovered during the seven year investigation with a series of unsolved crimes. And what's remarkable is that the film was made with the cooperation of Durst who has maintained his innocence and is a free man. It's from directing Smerling who were the creators of capturing the Freedmen's also a tremendously good documentary. One of my favorite documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. Well, this is great. This is really good. I, personally have seen it and think it's amazing. Actually, Jarecki also made a feature film about Durst called All Good Things, which starred Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. So, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, Sundays at 8 o'clock, only on HBO. It was a sad, bad, weird week for TV news. The 
mm-hmm. host of CBS is uh, 60 Minutes, who is a colleague of John's. Bob Simon was killed in a car accident. John Stewart announced his departure from The Daily Show. He'll be leaving The Daily Show. And, and Brian Williams, the anchor of NBC's nightly newscast and, and probably the most famous network anchor remaining, was quickly and summarily suspended for six months without pay for his fabulistic tales about his, his reporting experiences in Iraq. We talked about Williams' sins last week, uh, although Emily wasn't here, so she gets a, a right of response if she wants. So we're not going to spend a lot of time rehashing them, but we want to talk today about how we are to respond. How are we to forgive? Are we to forgive what Williams has done? David Brooks wrote a column in the New York Times arguing for forgiveness and, and with a lot of citations to Martin Luther King discussing how King used forgiveness and, and making the case that we ought to offer forgiveness freely to those who wrong us. And he also, Brooks also made a big deal about the, what he called the barbaric response to what Williams did, that there was, a, there was an excessive glee and bloodletting at what were sins of hubris on, and, and ego that Williams displayed, but that the response was, was overwrought. Can I add one more thing to the mix? Yeah. So there's a piece in this weekend's Times Magazine about Justine Sacco, the PR. I was going to mention her. Good. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's this great piece by John Ronson, who I'm a huge fan of, in which he was trying – he was taking a stand against the kind of savage Explain public shaming. Explain. So Justine Sacco is that woman who tweeted some dumb joke about how white people don't get AIDS when she was on a plane to South Africa. And her – trended on Twitter and by the time she got where she was going, there was like someone photographing her at the airport and she was just like utterly eviscerated and humiliated and lost her job and like it's horrible. And then Ronson goes on to also talk about a few other people who had this incredibly painful 15 minutes of fame on social media. And then he goes back into the 18th and 19th century and talks about public floggings and like what kind of role all of this is playing in society. And by the end of the piece, like you want to take a shower. At least I did. It's so – first of all, it's scary because you feel like, oh my god, any misstep. And second of all, it just feels like it's um, this – incredible cruelty where people pile on and they forget there's like a real human being at the bottom of the pile. All that said, it's fine with me that Brian Williams has to step down for six months because I think he actually like did a bad thing. But what anyway, you may remember in uh, June of 2009, when um, Mark Sanford uh, fell apart, that I wrote a piece about the disturbing glee uh, at Sanford's downfall to preface because I'm now prefacing what I'm about to say about Brooks, which is that what he's standing up for is not accurately assessing what the underlying problem was. What he's saying is that you shouldn't that there shouldn't be this piling on that's that is not only piling on because everybody's doing it. It's not only piling on made worse by social media and by our interconnectedness, but the glee that attaches when because on social media in particular, we're all one-upping each other. The first person jumps on, and then the second person has to top that person. And so by the end of it, you get this huge glowing mass of judgment about the underlying cause, which totally obliterates the proper sort of kind of view about whatever the underlying thing was. So I totally agree with what Brooks uh, wrote about. And to do that is not to say that whatever was the underlying issue is not an issue. It's to just say there's a total disproportion well, here. I guess the question is, yes. so so you as a citizen are presented with, with an act of wrongdoing in some fashion, some form of sin by 
a figure you have a feeling about. What's the appropriate response? Is yeah. the appropriate response silence? Is I the appropriate response you discuss it with your friends, but yeah. you don't discuss it no. in a way that, that spreads it? I think the – so, I, I mean, I, I think it depends on – as Al Gore would say, it depends on your faith tradition. Um, I mean, I think for me, the first thing that uh, the, the first thing I think about, right, is Matthew, which is, you know, don't judge lest ye be judged, which is not to say you can't be critical of other people, but just to be really cautious about and humble about human failings and to not del- and then and so that's the first to give you perspective on how you're going to frame this even just in the quietude of your own life before you ever say about anything about anything to anyone else. And then secondly is not to delight in someone else's downfall, even... Even in conversation, John, we have to be well-behaved? I mean, you know, sometimes it's fun to just have fun, right? And you can... And in, you know, the privacy of your own little cocoon, it may become totally detached and disassociated from the underlying person. So I think that's... It would be not very humble or very self-knowing for me to say, like, no, you must have to always be serious. But I just think, I think the pause, like the pause for context, the pause for human failings and all of that. And then to David's more important question is like, what do you, if you're going to talk about this in public, I think just always remembering there's like a human person at the center of this um, when you speak about it in public, I think is a good place to start. I I remember, John, you and I both covered impeachment or some forms of it. And I, I say this with some measure of shame, but not as, probably as much as I should. Like, I had so much fun during the Clinton scandal. I think I had so much fun because it felt so trivial. It just felt like, oh, we're living a soap opera. What, what pleasure it is. But, and so I didn't really spend a lot of t- time thinking about the human suffering of Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp and, and Bill Clinton. And Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton. Is there some inverse proportion to how conscious we have to be about this to how, like, powerful, wealthy and um, a public figure someone is? Right. And how much they invite it. So, for example, is making sport of Donald Trump's failings more <laughs> OK than making sport of someone who is um, has less of a gargantuan ego and who is less openly critical in their entire life and every being about other people. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is a, you know, very right. judgmental. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, person, if you live so. right, if you live by it, if you live and you benefit from this, this media frenzy, should you then have to be live held responsible? Live and die by it. Yeah. When you break its rules. I don't know. You're, John, you're such an ethical model on this. I want to just live the way you live. I want to know how you restrain well, yourself. Uh, you know, but that's, why, you well, not, that's why but I'm like writing gossip it. Gossip is that's one why of the greatest pleasures No, I know. Well, world. this is the point of well, that long-suffering piece on restraint. <laughs> that's why that, the, the long-suffering piece on restraint is, has not been published yet. Because this, this idea of restraint in everything, I mean, not... You know, this is the public version of it, but this is true about our debates on policy issues too, just the way in which everybody piles on and doesn't have that like momentary pause to kind of let flow in a little bit more perspective and context. I appreciate the compliment and wish I could accept it, but the reason I'm in that position is because I participate in this in the breach more than in the success, right? Because I know my own worst instincts on these kinds of things, especially when you're as shallow as I am and you make jokes about things, the jokes that line up, they stack up like planes over O'Hare, right, that you can make about one of these instances. And it's incredibly fun to join in the piling on because 
It's just fun. It's like improv comedy on Twitter. I think it's corrosive to the person at the heart of it. And I think it's corrosive more broadly. It's like the collective hive has like a bloody carcass in its mouth. I find those moments really scary, actually. But but is the problem that Brian Williams, you know, feels his carcass being torn apart? Is the problem the individual jokes that are made? Is the problem the fact that they're made in a public forum? Is the problem the fact that the person who they're made about and his family are consuming them and are know about them? Like, would it matter if, if we just sat around without the microphones on and said terrible things about Brian Williams? Going back See, to your original I question, I will Emily. hypocritically draw a line there. It seems to me that venting and gossiping and saying mean things to your friends about people, right. and that's all. I mean, right. like, I'm sure I should strive for better behavior, right. but, like, forget it. I'll never get there. Whereas, like, what I post right. on social I media, what I, I say totally publicly, different. Completely yeah. agree. Uh, hypocritical, but livable. Not hypocritical. Why is that hypocritical? It's, it's saying there's a distinction. The distinction is that public and private life are different and that that you have a responsibility as a public citizen, that when you are broadcasting to the world and because of who you are, you have a power to broadcast, that you that you owe something bigger than. I think in the, but in they, the but, but that also sorry, John. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that also the we are so intrinsically gossipy, judgmental creatures who are looking at our place in the pack, you know, checking where the alphas are, you know, trying to groom groom other people. To say that people shouldn't have those thoughts, yeah. they shouldn't express them to their loved ones, they shouldn't, you know, have sport and conversation around it is to ask us to be inhuman, I think. Right. I think one other part of the public piece of this is I think there's also an out of whackedness and a lack mm -hmm. of proportion that this promotes so that now everything goes from zero to 11 instantaneously. We are now in a pattern where it's like, you know, mistake, pillorying, you're fired, you're over. And now there is a little bit of a like there used to be no second acts. Now there are lots of second acts. In part because well, there we, has to be because otherwise everyone's like, right. Otherwise on the it's like floor. it's it's Game of Thrones. There are no more characters <laughs> left, right? Exactly. I mean, you can't like imagine if every time a pitcher had to be called from a baseball game, they shot him in the head. Like you'd only have five games a season. But <laughs> that you know, would be awesome. That would be the world's perfect baseball season. Awesome. So uh, so, so you know great. that's that sense of being out of whack. Is, now I'm just distracted by that. <laughs> David wants mad. <laughs> As killings in baseball. Um, but that that's the thing I've been fumbling with with a, um, this uh, long piece uh, that I've been wrestling with on restraint is that I think there is a – there are the small ways in which we do this, which are about personal morality and ethics, and that's fine, and that's whatever it is. But when those get bigger and they get bigger fast through social media, I think there is a big social cost to this, which is that we live – stealing from David Brooks, that we used to fly off the handle, now we live off the handle. It's like everything is at this extreme place. And so we've lost the capacity to deal with all kinds of stuff, public policy. Emily, your very good point about um, Roy Moore and where you agree with Thomas and Scalia, if you weren't the person you were and able to kind of think it through on the merits, you would just default to Thomas and Scalia, bad, Roy Moore, bad, this is you would have basically defaulted to the previous position you had. And that's where most people are, is the tribal position. And if the tribe ejects people like Brian Williams or the rest of them, then we just get into this like total ejection mode and we stop thinking and it destroys lives. But it also like it makes it incapable of having like serious conversations about serious things. Can I just say one last thing, though, which is like I feel this much more strongly for someone like Justine Sacco than I do for Brian Williams. Like To me, lots of sympathy for super rich and powerful people. Just I'm like, OK, whatever. Yeah, I guess it got out of hand. But like. 
I don't know. It seems much worse to me when someone who makes one inadvertent mistake arises out of anonymity to become completely ignominious. Well, it wasn't totally. inadvertent. It was advertent, but it was it was a mistake. Okay, but fine. yeah, I, Emily, I totally, totally agree with you. I think though the reason, the whole reason we're talking about it with respect to Brian Williams is just because he's known, and therefore we're all talking about it. You know, the lesson should be most quickly and often applied to just the cases you're talking about or as you know better than anybody who's covered people who suddenly are in the limelight because of one thing or another you know the whole world descends on their lives and there's nobody saying wait stop build a shield around this person or think about what this person has done last question i'm going to give to you emily so what does williams have to do to regain status in the world to regain respectable society I don't know. Is he supposed to just, like, be quiet for six months? Well, first of all, he didn't do a good job of apologizing. Like, did he issue a better apology? I lost a little track. The first one was a lame apology. He should do some, like, real apology. And then, I don't know, I don't even know if he's, like, allowed on the air. But if he could do some just, like, really solid, you know, humble, keep-your-head-down reporting where he's not self-aggrandizing about all the great dangers he is taking that that would be good if he's if nbc will let him do that before we go away from this it's worth pausing just for a moment to say something about bob simon you know i watched 60 minutes from like the minute i was able to distinguish a television from a feeding bottle i mean he was a total badass to the extent that brian williams fell into the trap of trying to inflate his resume to kind of suggest that he'd been where there was danger like Bob Simon probably in life def- had to deflate his resume more than inflate it from Vietnam to being a prisoner held in, in Iraq for 40 days at the at the beginning of the first Iraq war to just constantly being in places where people were trying to either kill him or the circumstances of the place would make death really likely. He was an extraordinary journalist. And the, and the fact that after his whole life spending getting out of scrapes, the fact that he was then killed in a car accident because he wasn't, well, maybe not just because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, but he wasn't. Like, it's just kind of, it's the way life is sometimes. Emily Bazelon has an amazing New York Times magazine story. It's her debut cover story as a staff writer. It is the cover story, right, Emily? Must be the cover story. Yes. 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 (laughs) So it is... uh, You said said that in such a way. So it'll be out this weekend. I'm very excited about that. This weekend, it's already up online. It's about, well, she's going to tell us about, about, I'll give the, the two seconds, about a... A uh, an internet gazillionaire named Joe Lonsdale, a student, a Stanford student slash model, that former uh, model, former model. What's a model? Always a model. It's like being an ambassador. Just, I was just out at Stanford for a day. They're all models on that yeah. campus. It's like this idyllic place. Ugh, I don't agree. Super pleasant. I do not agree. And the sun is out all the time. I don't agree. It really makes you grumpy. Yeah. And uh, everybody's and, got just money coming out. They're can just I like, say, though, that when I went out to report for this story a few months ago, I got out of the taxi in front of my hotel, and the first thing I saw was a dead rat in the gutter in Palo Alto, probably like the only rat in Palo Alto. I was like... What is go- look what they they imported weird. that from from uh, Passaic just to make it exactly. seem a little edgy. It just uh, seemed like a that, bad that rat cost thirty six hundred dollars. <laughs> it was actually an animatronic rat that Google was creating, driverless rat. So Emily Store has is the intersection of all the best themes in the American zeitgeist these days: Silicon Valley, sexual assault on campus, false accusations, rough uh, Fifty Shades of Grey style sex social networking. Emily, just tell us a bit about the story and then we'll start hassling you about it. 
Well, it was a super hard story to report. It came to me from Ellie Clarity, who's the former Stanford student at the center of it, and she had a relationship for a year with Joe Lonsdale. They met privately. Who is Joe Lonsdale? He helps create Palantir, the big data mining company, and he has a new um, what's it called venture capital fund called Formation Eight that has raised. Gazillions of dollars. He's a really successful entrepreneur, a startup guy in the valley. He met Ellie Clarity privately through friends, actually in the spring of her sophomore year at Stanford, and they were just like in touch over email. They went out for a drink once or twice, not in a dating way, really. And then he signed up to be her mentor for a course, an engineering course she was taking. And she was in a f- team of four students, and he was one of two mentors assigned to her. And she, at that point, you know, w- it was fine with her to have um, him as a mentor. She, I think, had no reason to think that was going to be a big problem at that point. And he obviously like offered all of this access to the valley. He's like a gateway to power and influence. They started dating consensually during the mentorship. They had a year long relationship, and at the end of it. Ellie complained to Stanford that Lonsdale had sexually assaulted and sexually harassed her. It took a long time for Stanford to do an investigation into those allegations. The initial investigation the school did was only into, as far as I can tell, is only into whether Lonsdale had broken the rules against consensual relationships between mentor and mentees. But eventually, Stanford did the assault harassment um, investigation and banned him from campus for at least ten years. And then Ellie got political consciousness through the rape prevention movement、um, that's been going on at campuses, and decided to publicly sue Lonsdale. So last month, I think it's yeah, this is the beginning of the month. A couple of weeks ago, she sued him civilly in California and federal court for a whole bunch of charges, and it's a very Graphic complaint alleging a lot of sexual offenses.、Um, Lonsdale absolutely denies that he raped her or that they had any kind of forced sex, and he countersued for defamation. It's a very ugly fight. You know, it raises questions about Stanford's relationship to Silicon Valley and the kind of de facto open door policy that the school has, and then it also raises questions about where we are in this campus sexual assault movement、um, and what schools. Do when they're faced with pressure to do more for women who say they have been raped. Will we ever know whether she was raped? Huh. I mean, I can't. I feel like I can't answer that question. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Obviously, there are tons of emails going back and forth between them, and so, and there, you know, there were friends and witnesses and people to interview about what they'd experienced. But to a great degree, this is a fight that's a war of interpretation as opposed to a fight over facts. This, I'm exaggerating a little bit. There are some real facts that the two of them diverge on. But you know, when you have a year long relationship and then you look back on it and Call it rape and abuse. One question is what you experienced in the moment, as opposed to what you are experiencing in retrospect. And so that's like a big question on the table in this story. And to some degree, at this point, I want everyone else to read it and think about it and kind of puzzle through the dilemma I was puzzling through. So I'm super curious what you guys think. If you feel like you want to weigh in on that, well, I actually want to know more about your process, actually, because okay. Well, here's why. Because we just had an example of a story that had a lot of similar themes, the Rolling Stone story. And having watched you write this over 
however many months and agonize over this. I think since we've also talked about on the show the Rolling Stones story, I mean, I think it would be interesting. I would want to hear, like, when you say you thought about either the rape question or some of these other questions, can you talk a little bit more about that to the extent that you can? How one thinks about this, what you do to try and figure this out, either mentally or by doing more interviews. In some ways, it's funny. It's like the mistakes that Rolling Stone made were so basic that it was like never possible. I mean, I don't mean to sound the least bit self-righteous. I'm sure I made other mistakes. But, you know, what happened in the Rolling Stone story was that it was there was one source. There was a victim there. The writer and the magazine made no effort to confirm like any basic facts in her account. And then, you know, in the the journalistic like soul searching and upheaval as that story fell apart we i learned and i didn't know this that there are survivor groups that are demanding that journalists agree not to contact an alleged assailant as a condition of telling their stories so that was just like never on the table for me in reporting this story and to the credit of ellie and her mother um who i started talking to last summer you know, I said to them, like, I need to get in touch with Lonsdale and everyone else I can find. And they helped me find people to talk to. So they never had the expectation it was going to be one-sided. And when the Rolling Stone eruption happened, their response was like, we need to make even more sure that this story is solid and nailed down. So in some ways, I feel like all I did was like pass journalism 101. Like I called the people who I thought might know these people and I read as many documents as I could to get a sense of what the contemporaneous record for this relationship was. I think what was helpful about Rolling Stone as like a moment in the profession was interrogating what our job is vis-a-vis people who claim to be rape victims as opposed to the job of their friends and advocates, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm not on someone's team. It's not my job to just believe her truth or believe anyone's truth. It's our job to, like, test and probe and check, and that's what journalists do. And if you want to be in a story and have that kind of publicity, that has to be really clear up front um, to you from the beginning. And then, like, we – I you know, my job is to follow facts. It's not to follow a story like where I wish it would go or where like my politics would prefer for it to go. Emily, you asked us like what we thought about it. I came away from this exceedingly dismayed at this lawsuit by Ellie Clowardy, however you say her last name. There's clearly something wrong with the sexual politics of Silicon Valley and technology. Like there, you know, there's definitely something skeezy about it there's there are elements of of using young attractive women as currency like there's definitely something happening there that is ugly but you know here you have a what is basically a relationship that goes awry there's no effort to bring criminal charges there's no effort to to make a criminal claim and you have an extremely rich guy with deep pockets, who seems very vulnerable to both embarrassment, effectively a form of, of PR blackmail, and very vulnerable to have to pay a big settlement. And, you know, the, the lawsuit feels to me like not justified by the description and the reporting you did in the story. It feels to me like, you know, the relationship may have had bad elements, and it's possible there are elements of sexual coercion in there. I don't think we can ever know, really. It doesn't sound like we'll ever be able to know. But the idea that there is then a judgment that needs to be rendered against this person based on what we know seems to me totally crazily off base and 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 disturbing i have no brief for joe lonsdale he doesn't seem you know he's not somebody i want to hang out with he doesn't seem like a a hell fellow well-met dude but it didn't feel like he deserved what was happening to him here 
I mean, one of the things I've been wrestling with and have not resolved in my head is the difference between civil and criminal remedies in a situation like this, because this also involves the schools and the obligations they now have under Title IX to investigate assault and harassment. So I think we would probably agree or like I certainly feel that it has been a good development in the law to have civil remedies for sexual harassment. I'm glad that employers and universities have an obligation to protect workers from a hostile environment to, you know, investigate and deal with those kinds of questions. And you can see rape and sexual assault as like a serious form of sexual harassment that should have a whole separate civil investigation and track and remedy that's different from the criminal justice system. And that is the Obama administration's, you know, at least I think part of their justification for the way in which they have really pushed and changed the legal obligations of schools to deal with these issues. The problem is that that also puts schools And I guess the same thing would be true for employers in this position where they are investigating very serious crimes. And sometimes like it's not that hard to figure out an allegation, even a rape allegation. Sometimes there are witnesses and evidence and it's like happening in the moment. And that isn't a huge burden. But there are cases in which it is a real huge burden and very difficult to figure out. And I think this is one of them. And so, I mean, Stanford made some big mistakes in handling this case. I don't want to let them off the hook, and I'm happy to go into what I think they are. But I also do have this feeling of, like, confusion about exactly how the universities are supposed to be the best equipped and the best situated institution for investigating rape. And, you know, other writers, Emily Yaffe, Judith Shulovitz, a Harvard law professor named Janet Halley, like Zoe Heller in the New York Review of Books, they've been much more like carrying this crusade forward than me. I'm like standing in some weird space. I don't know quite what I think. Um, But I recommend reading their critiques because I think that even if you disagree with them, it's important to really think through these issues. Emily, do you think there's any difference between what is happening with women sexual behavior, sexual coercion in Silicon Valley from any of the other sort of rich industries in the world, from Hollywood or from Wall Street, industries where where also young, attractive women are, they both have advantages that allow them to participate and get rewards, but also that they're you know used in these ways that are ugly. But do you think Silicon Valley is qualitatively different? I do. I mean, I'm not a person of the Valley. So like, really, what do I know? But I kind of think that Silicon Valley is in its adolescence. So like Hollywood used to be this way. And maybe it still is to some degree. And certainly and Wall Street had its moment of this. But Wall Street in particular has become a more buttoned up place. Like there are HR departments and everybody knows the rules and the penalties for sexual harassment and the lines between personal and professional. My sense is that they are clear, whereas the Valley is a place that prides itself on informality. You know, people routinely have kind of, you know, meetings over drinks or on walks. And when I was reporting for the story, I talked to a lot of women and also some men about how confusing that blurring can be. And then the other dynamic that's important here is that most of the people in power in the Valley are men. You know, the people who are high up in the companies, hiring and promoting, certainly the VC funders and angel investors, heavily, heavily male. So there is frequently a dynamic in which when women are trying to get something, a job or money for a startup, they are appealing to men. And then sometimes sexual overtures are just sort of like out there on the table as a kind of form of currency and 
then that, you know, maybe that's welcome, but often maybe it's not. And I think that dynamic is an aspect of gender discrimination, of just like sexual politics that the Valley needs to be grappling with more than it is now. And my story is not the perfect vehicle for this. It's its own situation in some ways, like maybe an outlier. I'm not sure. But I do think there is starting to be more attention to these questions in the Valley and that that is like a healthy, good thing um, and that the Valley like needs to grow up a little. All right. So Emily's story, it's the undergraduate and the mentor, the mentor and the undergraduate. Yeah, I think the the cover line is the accusation. The accusation. Uh, It's the cover of the New York Times Magazine. It's also online already. So do read it. It's really, it's a very morally complex story. It will defy your your desires to come to moral certainty and engage in a barbaric Twitter crusade against somebody. (laughs) Let's uh, go to cocktail chatter. John, have you discovered historic episode while we've been taping the show that you would like to chat about? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I have not disco- uh, discovered a uh, historic episode, but um, I'm going to chatter about a, um, a story that was in the New York Times at the end of January about what is, I think, probably, although the Times doesn't make this claim, but I'm going to, based on really my own, the internal humors, um, the largest and best collection of political memorabilia owned by a single person. A guy named Jordan Wright, who was a lawyer and a photographer, when he was 10 years old, he started collecting political memorabilia. I think a Bobby Kennedy buttons were his first um, collection. And then over the years, he collected all kinds of different stuff, like a George W. Bush pinata, the flags, picture flags from George uh, Washington's time, from his swearing in, a purse with Warren Harding's logo on it um, that was used to attract female voters, a bunch of Lincoln memorabilia. It is an extraordinary collection, and it has it was all brought together in something called Campaigning for President, which is a book about the, this whole collection. And I mean, he has for anybody who cares about memorabilia from campaigns, he has, for example, I believe, an original copy of the coffin handbills, which were considered the first. Although they weren't the first, they were considered the first kind of negative advertising. They were pamphlets that were passed around with six or seven coffins on them during the 1928 uh, presidential election. And it it claimed that Jackson had, during a variety of conflicts, um, mostly I think the Creek battles, um, had basically killed people in uh, these terrible, horrible, sort of murderous ways. And they were called the Coffin Handbills because of the the, the six uh, coffins. And they had the names of the people he had apparently killed. And then also there is a another great piece of negative um, literature called The Serious Lesson in President Harding's Case of Gonorrhea. And uh, it's all contained. <laughs> That's awesome. It's all contained in this amazing he collection. he kept handing out those purses to ladies. It's like, no wonder he got <laughs> But tragically, uh, Mr. Wright died at age 50 of an aneurysm in his sleep. And all of these materials from his collection, these like thousands and thousands and thousands of flags and umbrellas and presidential canes and all the rest of it are in a storage unit. And the entire sense of their order was all in his head. And so now they sit in the storage unit and his son, who's 23, is now trying to figure out like how to extricate them without and, and keep the collection intact without losing it all and having it scattered to a million different collectors. And he's got to raise like $1.5 million, which I think is quite a difficult thing to do. So it all sits intact in like the best episode of Storage Wars you've ever seen uh, in a bunch of storage units. And it is this 
extraordinary collection, not only for what's inside of it, but also obviously for the love that this guy had for the campaigns. And it's probably, unless there's some miracle, it's just going to kind of get dispersed throughout the land. So, Warren Harding in gonorrhea. God. Cal Coolidge had syphilis. <laughs> you know that? Uh, Hoover Are we going to just run crabs. through the venereal oh, right, diseases right. of the presidents, David Plough? Yes, yeah. yeah, we will. another thing you can do backwards? That would be, that would be awesome. It took the VD of the presidents. Which presidents do we think had VD? You would think... Well, you know, I mean, obviously, Mary, there was the claim about Mary Lincoln. Uh, I, oh. I would claim JFK for this. JFK, I no definitely. Idea. Maybe that's definitely, really mean, definitely. but he certainly could have. Yeah. Oh, I mean, just sheer Clint, probability. Clinton. You got exactly. you to you put money on Clinton, too. Yeah. JFK, definitely. LBJ probably. Who knows? Anyway, Emily, what's your uh, what's your chatter? <laughs> um, our former colleague Megan O'Rourke tweeted this wonderful link. I think it was to the New Yorker of um, pictures of drawings that the children of Charles Darwin kind of doodled on the back of the original manuscript of the Origin of Species. Species? Is that, did I say that correctly? Anyway, yes. there are these beautiful, well, beautiful, they're like these really colorful, whimsical drawings of animals. And first of all, it's just so, so lovely idea that these kids were drawing on the back of this incredibly important work. And then there's just like a fantastical appeal to what they were actually drawing. And it all brought to mind for me a children's book I adore and have probably um, mentioned before because I love to push it on people, but it's called The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate. And it's about a girl and her grandfather and, and Darwinism, like the whole idea of trying to understand how species evolve. Um, I really recommend it for reading out loud with kids. Awesome. I'm going to do a double chatter. First, did you guys listen to the Culture Gap Fest this week? They had a their Slate Plus segment was about the greatest love songs. It was our Valentine's Day. Oh, so we're oh talking what a about great love idea! Songs. It was great. So it made me think about my favorite love songs, which I decided were. Are you going to sing them for us? I will not because it I, is almost Valentine's Day. I decided you your Valentine's Day. I, I have such a terrible voice. Darling Companion, the June and. Johnny Cash song, you must know. That mm. Yeah, yes. I'm just no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at you in an evaluative <laughs> yeah. sense. Yeah, um, I love that one. I love Friday. I'm in love. The Cure. Friday. I'm in love. That's a huh. great one. My baby. My baby just cares for me. Mm. And only fools rush in, or whatever the whatever the Elvis song. I guess it's called. What I don't know. All right, it's we need a David's Valentine's Day playlist. Huh. I think that's interesting. So just think about it. Now I'm going to do my real chatter, which yeah. is it's, it's sort of the same. There, there's a wonderful explainer piece by Dana Goldstein at the Marshall Project this week about conjugal visits in prison. So about which there's just so much written. There's so much popular culture about. So she just explains, like, what is it? How do you get it? What happens? She points out, first of all, that there are very few states that still allow them. There are only four states that still allow them. There used to be as many wow, as 17. Wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Um, some of them you can't. You actually have to bring kids. You can only have a conjugal visit if kids are there. The visits can last for So that means hour. you can't have sex? Well, no, you might because they're so, they, you, they take place in usually at prisons. And these are usually low security. These are obviously prisoners who have earned. they place like in trailers. Yeah, they do. The tra- trailers are called the Boneyard. Um, Why are they called that, David? I don't know. Why are they called that, David? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, John. <laughs> it talks about there's a lot of board games, Jenga. People play a lot of Jenga, and the, the visits can last from Yeah, is that what like they're a, calling yeah. it now? Well, there's a great picture of someone playing Jenga, and it's like a piece. You know, I love Jenga. They last for an hour to three days, and sometimes you have to get <laughs> inspected every four hours. 
no matter what. Like, but the but the the most interesting detail actually was at the at the very end, which is where does it come from? Where's the idea of the conjugal visit visit come from in American prisons? And according to Dana says, according to David Oshinsky, the the historian, it starts at Parchman Dead, oh. at Parchman Prison, which is a terrible like basically concentration Alabama, right? camp in Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. Mississippi. Sorry, oops, um, sorry, Alabama. Not labor, to be confused with Arkansas. And it was started by a warden. It was only for black prisoners in 1918. And from 1918 to the 1940s, it was only for black prisoners because this, this you know, total racist warden thought that, that African-American men had stronger sex drives than white men and that they wouldn't work in the cotton fields unless they were, Dana's words, sexually sated. So they brought in, they brought in prostitutes oh um, my God. And, on Sundays. And then, then the, the program was expanded in the 40s to – white men and then 70s to include female inmates so it's a really it's a really interesting piece about like, that sounds a, great a uh, it's a fascinating yeah. piece if you feel imprisoned in your marriage and you have a conjugal visit in prison what's that uh, called hmm. you're on your question. own yeah, buddy i don't know that not there's a, not a love song one. about I don't that know what, i don't know what i'm not i can't even navigate that that's an algorithm i don't understand our producer is mike Bolo. our intern is tark barrett our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest with links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest, and our email address is gabfestslate.com. You can subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.